Hello and welcome to episode 221 of Fergon on the Freak. I'm the from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP. And joining me as always is the adroit League Freak. You can find me on Twitter at League Freak. How you going there, mate? I'm going pretty well. How are you? I'm very good. Excellent. We should uh, thank our sponsors for this episode. That seems like the right com. thing to do, yes. Yeah, go to manscaped.com, put in our exclusive promo code NRL and get 20% off and free shipping on everything on the site. Um, check out the Lawnmower 3.0. It's a good bit of kit and it will get you match ready. It'll get you smooth. Hell yeah. Everyone likes smooth. I, I agree. I think everyone does. I think it's universal. Yeah, I just tried to think of someone who may not agree with us, and I couldn't think of anyone. Nah, nah. Proof's in the pudding, people. Get to manscaped.com and buy whatever you want. Type in our code NRL, 20% off, free shipping. Bloody hell. And as Andrew says, the proof in the pudding is in the eating. That is true. (laughs) Now... We've decided, after a little bit of good feedback from an episode a few weeks ago, that we're going to start looking at doing some um, short episodes looking at some interesting stats. Yeah, and it's something that, like, I mean, obviously you're a statistician and you've got the greatest amount of stats of anybody in the entire world of rugby league. And we do talk about stats every so often, but we tend to not record it. And so we're going to talk about it and record it from now on yeah so and these won't be huge ones so um you know bite-sized stats to educate you yeah i can't wait so we're gonna look at the 12 most successful teams and this is not based on overall histories these are just teams that had a win percentage in the regular season of 90 percent or higher and there's only been 12 of them since 1908 it's not that many. It, like, you kind of feel as though there would have been more, don't you? Like, it, it, you feel as though in your lifetime you've seen a number of successful teams that hit that mark in the regular season. But for there only to have been 12 all-time shows that they don't come around very often. Correct. And uh, three of the teams here have been undefeated in a season. But only one of those actually won every game. So that means that the other two there actually had a draw or, you know, two draws in the season, something like that. Um, actually, no, one, only only two of them are undefeated now that I look. So, and there's been more than two undefeated teams in a season. So that's, that's also another interesting thing. So the 1915 Bowman team isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, the 1921 North Sydney team's not there. Mm-hmm. The 1936 and 1937 East teams aren't there. Mm-hmm. They're the other. They're the undefeated teams that didn't make it onto this list. Now, why didn't they make the list? The season was shorter. Yep. So having one or maybe two draws in those short seasons was enough to drop the win percentage under 90%. Okay. Yeah. So let's get started. We'll start from 12th and work our way up to the best team. Sounds good. Okay. I've already explained the top team anyway, but anyway. Uh, 1909 South Sydney side. So this competition had 10, 10 games. South mm-hmm. won nine of them and had one loss. And that one loss came in the very last round before the finals. They lost to Newcastle. 
and they lost 5 nil. Oh, yeah, that's interesting that Newcastle had success early on. <laughs> you feel as though they didn't have too much success, but, um, yeah. Well, in, the, in that second season, they snuck into the top four, which is what you need to do to get to the finals. I think they had five wins and four losses, so that win in that last round got them into the finals. Okay, that's interesting. They then lost in the first week, I think, to Balmain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a very strong South team. They defensively were un- unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Only conceded 41 points for the year in 10 games. Whoa, that's incredible. Um, and scored 200 and- 210 points. That's wow. average score of 21 to 4. And, of course, that 1909, that's the famous forfeited grand final. That's correct, yes. Um, and we've been through that, that 1909 season, yeah, you know, in one of the history episodes. Yeah, in depth, yep. This South Sydney team, though, was chock-a-block full of Test and um, New South Wales stars. Mm-hmm. Only, let's see, two, three, four, five, six, seven... Only eight of their 22 players didn't play for Australia or New South Wales. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> um, and those eight basically filled in when those players were all playing rep footy. That's yeah. why they're there. Far out. It's pretty pretty amazing. So the test players they had in there were from either 1908 or 1909. It was uh, Johnny Rosewell, uh, Webby Neal, John Levison, Arthur Hennessy. Walter Davis, Arthur Conlon, William Cairn, Arthur Butler, and Tommy Anderson. And, of course, like with the – there's a lot of different stories about that four-footed grand final, um, and a lot of it surrounds who was going to be available for the grand final because there were um, games that Australia was going to be playing in, the Australian Rugby League team that was going to be playing in, and they weren't going to be available for the grand final sites. That's correct, yeah. So, um, they they were. I think, I think they were going to be able to field a fairly strong team anyway, or most most likely would have fielded their strongest team. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they they knew too that um, the you know the Balmain weren't going to be turning up. That was that much was pretty clear. Mm-hmm. So, I think they were pretty confident that they'd be able to. Field a strong kangaroos team against the Wallabies. Um, the thing that was interesting is that the New South Wales Rugby League still wanted to have, you know, two games on grand final day. Mm-hmm. So they asked a bunch of first grade players, some from other clubs, a lot of others from reserve grade, if they could come along to the game and we'll put you in a match against the, the South Sydney team. So that's what happened. And South Sydney won that game 18-10. Nice. And uh, South Sydney player Tom Golden lined up for the combined first grade team. And he managed to lose on the same day that he won a grand final. Not too bad, hey? It's a good effort. No one's done it since, and I dare say no one will ever do it ever again. (laughs) Um, Now, another... another, uh, notable player in that combined team was Barney Dalton. Mm-hmm. And many people won't know this, but Barney didn't have much of a career in, in rugby league, but he had quite a career in the Razor Gangs in Sydney. Mm-hmm. That's where he ended up dying. He got killed in one of the, the big brawls there. 
Oh, jeez. Uh, and he died in 1929. So, yeah, that's the, the South team from 1909. They were pretty impressive. Okay, so now who's next on the list? So the next one is the 1995 Manly team. And they are one of just four teams in this these 12 that did not go on to become premiers. Now, that Manly side, from memory, it was one of the great defensive teams of all time. And coached by Bob Fulton. Um, it was probably the height of Manly, really, being at their very best. I know they won the grand final the following year, but a lot of people feel as though the 95 Manly team was when they are at their strongest, weirdly. Yeah, I mean, especially when you look at the the ladder for that year, because there's another team that's on this list as well. Um, everyone was thinking for a long time throughout that season that Manly would play Canberra in that grand final. Mm. Um, and when one team further down the ladder surprised everyone. So it was, I think it was the the Bulldogs finished six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they were six. They came from nowhere to... to reached the grand final and beat Manly in one of the um, all-time upsets, if we're honest. Yeah, yeah. It is largely largely forgotten upset. It really is. It's one of those grand finals that, like you and me were talking about it before we started recording, and we're like, the Bulldogs, they, they won that year? Yeah, yeah, it was that year. <laughs> and <laughs> it really is. It's like a forgotten grand final. And my only the only thing I can think of is because... There was so much going on with Super League. Yeah. Um, it's sort of, uh, there was a lot of stuff off the field that was overshadowing what was going on on the field. And it's a shame too, because uh, as you say, that was one of the biggest grand final upsets we've probably seen in the last probably 40 years or so, I would suggest. It's and, definitely up there. Yeah. Is that, is that the grand final where they had that stupid Optus TV where it sort of exploded? I think it was, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was. <laughs> we remember that bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, that year, Manly, they played 22 games. They won 20, scored a mammoth 687 points, conceded just 248. That's a points difference of 439. That's incredible. Insane. Insane That's numbers. Absolutely incredible. Um, but yeah, they made it to the grand final, but didn't go any further. They lost... 17 to 4. Completely outclassed on the day. Yeah, who won the Clive Churchill medal in that game? That's a very good question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't remember uh, who it was. I've got a feeling it's Jim Dimmick. Jimmy Dimmick, eh? Um, I'll check on that, but I'm, I'm, I've got a feeling it's Jimmy Dimmick. Yeah, I just, I see, I cannot remember at all. Um, I'm a bit sketchy myself. Don't, <laughs> don't really remember medal winners too much. Yeah. Um, so next one on the list is the 1975 Roosters team. Mm-hmm. They also played 22 games and won 20. Mm-hmm. Um, they scored 431 points for the year, had the second best attack behind Manly by just eight points, mm-hmm. but conceded just 198. Oh, wow. Um, that's just... That's tiny, that is. That, that's, I can't remember, what is it, eight points a game? Yeah, it's like, that's incredible. Nine, and they nine points get, a game. And they went on to win the grand final, obviously. Yeah, they stormed home. And they absolutely pants the Dragons 38-0 in the mm. famous grand final where um, 
Graham Langlands who wore his white boots and then got a I think a painkiller injection in his leg and his uh his nerve system got a bit frayed or some something and he's lost all his coordination. Yeah, apparently they they hit his uh the nerve and it basically deadened his leg. Yeah. Run. Um horrible way for, for that career to end. It's just it's also horrible that while he is remembered for an immense amount of good things he did in the game, um that will always hang over him mm-hmm. or over his legacy anyway. But uh, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty impressive one. Now, the interesting thing about that season is that they didn't use points difference to determine ladder position. Mm-hmm. So if you had the same competition points as another team, you had to have a playoff if it was for a certain position to make, to reach the finals. Oh, really? That seems like it just seems unnecessary. So the thing that's curious about this and why I bring that up is because there was a three-way tie for fifth place. Oh, really? Parramatta, Balmain, and Wes. Now, Wes would have actually had fifth place all to their own, but they lost their one competition points for having a draw against Canterbury because they fielded an ineligible player. So the one point they got for that draw was taken off them, which took them from 22 points down to 21 and into that three-way playoff for fifth. Wow. (laughs) And so how did they sort out the three-way playoff? How do you reckon they would have done it? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to work it out. I can tell you right now, it had nothing to do with the ladder. Did 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 they toss a coin? Oh, close. Okay, what did they do? Draw them out of a hat. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, boy. So... Um, one team drawn out of a hat would have the luxury of playing the winner of the first playoff match. Bowman's name was drawn, but they lost to Parramatta, who beat both sides in three days to earn entry into the final series. Wow, that's a really cool way to uh, prepare for the final series, playing two matches. Yes. So if you went for the, if you went by points difference, mm-hmm. then West would have got in because their points difference was seventy six. Parramatta's was plus eighteen. Bowman's was minus sixty nine. Oh wow! So. Um, yeah, West essentially got dudded twice there. <laughs> Poor old West. That was probably the height of their entire existence <laughs> in the last 30 years. It was a harsh way for that season to unfold. Yeah. Okay, next on the list is Canberra from 1995. And we've just discussed Manly from that year. Um, Canberra scored 634 points, which was 53 less than Manly. And conceded 255, which is just seven more than them. Um, yeah, they had 20 wins from 22 games. They didn't even make the grand final that year. Yeah, it's weird because I don't remember. Like, obviously, the 94 Raiders side were premiers. They beat the Bulldogs. Um, I don't think of the 95 Raiders as being a great side, but the statistics say that they were in the absolute elite of the elite. And it's kind of weird that they didn't go on to win the grand final. Yeah, they had six players that year who scored 10 or more tries. That's insane. Reckon you can name them? Let me have a go. Let me have a go. Uh, Brett Mullins? Uh, yes, he had 14. Okay. Uh, Jared Crocker? Jared Crocker, yes, he had 15. Um, Ken Nagus? He had 14. Okay. No one in Druku? He had 11. 
Got two more to get. Oh, I'm going pretty good. <laughs> um, ooh, Ruben Wiki? No. Ah, damn it. One, one, okay, the other two were Laurie Daly with 11. Yeah, I was going to say Laurie Daly. And David Ferner had 10. I wouldn't have got David Ferner. Nah, I, <laughs> I thought you were going to get Daly, and I thought you are not going to get the last one. Yeah, I, Laurie Daly would have been, like, after... After Wiki, <laughs> damn it! <laughs> so yeah, it was a, um, they they beat Brisbane in the qualifying final fourteen to eight, and then they lost to the Bulldogs twenty five to six, and that Man. knocked them out. Wow, that's incredible! The Bulldogs must have loved that win. Oh yeah, retribution. Yeah. All right. Next, uh, well, actually, the next two teams both come from nineteen twenty eight, and that was, the first one is uh, the Roosters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had 11 wins from 12 games that year. It was it was an odd season because there was an odd number of rounds and there was an odd number of teams. So some teams played 13 games, some teams played 12. Mm-hmm. They still went on points anyway. Um, so yeah, East had yeah 11 wins from 12 games. Points difference wasn't great considering how dominant they were because mm-hmm. they'd scored 192, conceded 116. Points difference was just 76. That's interesting. Um, but they did manage to go on to the, to the grand final. They got completely outplayed by the absolutely dominant South Sydney time of that era. Um, South won 26-5. Oh, wow. Um, this South team, they won all but one grand final, I think, between 1925 and 1932. Yeah. I can't, yeah, I, look, I can't, it's hard to even imagine what that's like to live through a team being that dominant, isn't it? It would, would it was it would have been hard work because back in those days too, even up until the sixties, you you usually only had two or three teams that won the premiership every year for the decade, mm. and that was it. It's kind of like English rugby league. Yeah, and the, the other thing is too, I guess because of the residency rules and stuff like that, it you didn't see very much movement between teams at all. So if you got a a good group of players, they were going to be there for you know, the best part of a decade anyway. Correct, yeah. It, it wasn't like the Sutter Cup was going to break them up or anything like we see now. That's right. That's exactly right. That's why the Sutter Cup is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so the other team from that season was St. George, and they won 12 of 13 games. Mm-hmm. Um, they scored 200 points, conceded 98. Their points difference was a much better 102. Mm-hmm. But they didn't even make the grand final. They lost the week before also to South, uh, 13 to 5. Wow. That's a fair effort by South knocking both those teams over. Yeah, absolutely it was. Um, considering South had just eight wins from 13 games that year. Yeah. Um, yeah, quite a quite an achievement indeed. Uh, another thing that's interesting about that season is um, Perennial Battlers University. They made the grand final two years before in 1926. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much what everyone believes was their only good season. But they actually finished... Um, one win outside the top four in the finals in this season. Mm-hmm. They had the same number of wins as um, North Sydney did, mm-hmm. but because Norris played one less game, they got an extra two points for the bye, and that got them in. Oh, um, yeah. And Norse and Uni both had the same points difference of plus eight. So they would have had to have a playoff to find out who was going to make the uh, the top four mm-hmm. if, if it hadn't have been for that, that bye for Norse. 
it's rough that they got two extra points just because the draw favoured them. Yeah, just by luck. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was one of the few seasons where Glebe finished outside the top four. Oh, wow. They finished in sixth place with West. The Dirty Reds. The Dirty Reds. They got cut in a very dirty manner the year after. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we're into teams, the, the last six teams, and all of them went, you know, went on to become premiers as well. Mm-hmm. So the next one is South Sydney from 1932. Um, they had uh, 13 wins from 14 games. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, another impressive team as as far as you know being full of rep stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, they had uh, you know as far as past and current uh, international rep players at the time: Albie Black, Huey Byrne, Frank Curran, Jim Dealey, Sid Harris, Herbie Marr, Jack Morrison, Frank O'Connor, Eddie Root, Albert Spillane, George Treweek, the legend, Benny Waring. The Winger Sensation, uh, Jack Y, and Percy Williams. Far out. And that was the end of their, their premiership run? Pretty much. Um, not so much Not so much because they started to um, drop off in form, mm-hmm. but because another team came along with better young players, and that was East. Yeah. Spearheaded, obviously, and largely by you know, Dave Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had Ray Stair come in as well. And there was a few other, you know, Fred Toddy and a few other really skillful um, forwards as well in there. So they just sort of, another team just caught up with them. Oh, okay. And then went ahead. Uh, and then everyone else started catching up, as they do, as the uh, as the South team got a bit older. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting how that works. So, yeah, that South team was pretty impressive. Um, next team was the 1912 East side. Mm-hmm. Um, they won 13 or 14 games, scored 230 points, conceded just 86. Oh, yeah, that's pretty handy. Uh, Daly Messenger scored 80 points that year. How many games did he play to score 80 points? Uh, he played. He did that in 11 games. Far out. Two tries, 36 goals, and a field goal. He was only 29 at the time. Man, and he'd, he'd been playing so much rep footy. Oh, yeah. Like, but, I, people don't understand how much he was made. To, well, I mean, you knew what he was he was getting into, but he was made to work yeah, for being gave a his, star in the game. He gave his life for the game uh, in those opening years. Absolutely, he did. But they had some talented players there. Uh, Dan and Mick Frawley, Arthur Pony Halloway. Um, he was one of those players, just, no matter where he went, Success just followed him. Kind of like James Maloney, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Daly Messenger, his brother Wally, uh, Larry O'Malley, Sid Pierce, Eddie White, Percy White, and uh, Bob Williams. All of those guys had played either for New South Wales or Test Football, mm-hmm. or both. Yeah. Um, pretty impressive squad. And they didn't have too many injuries or omissions and stuff. So they were able to just stay together and you know, run away with the season. The only loss was to Newtown, and they lost 4-2. A uh, close one. <laughs> Jeez. Um, yeah, so that's that's the 1912 East team. The next team is the 1917 Balmain side. Mm-hmm. 
And this team was pretty impressive defensively. So they had 13 wins from 14 games as well. They scored 269 points in 14 games and conceded just 61. Oh, that's that's absolutely incredible. That's so incredible. That's, it makes you wonder... I was going to say, that's an average of 4.3 points per game. That yeah. They conceded. It, like, it would be interesting to watch them play, wouldn't it? To see what they were doing that was so much better than everyone else at the time defensively. Yeah. Um, I think to... Um, I'm, I'm going to have to take my uh, rainbow <laughs> rainbow tinted glasses off here, but <laughs> I dare say to Balmain were um, helped by the the war effort because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of you know not Balmain were impacted by the war as well, but a lot of a lot of other things were a bit more heavily impacted by losing some of their more key players. Whereas yeah. Balmain had a few youngsters come through mm-hmm. uh, who were just yeah you know, test ready. Yeah, he plays like Reg Ladder, who went on playing, went on to play quite a few tests. Um, Albert Johnson, Arthur Halloway again, he <laughs> moved over from the Roosters. Um, Chuck Fraser, Al Fraser, Bob Craig, Jimmy Craig, who was at the start of his career there, and I've spoken about him, I think, with you before, but not so much on air. Um, he had a a pretty amazing career as well, both sides of the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, quite a few other players. So that was this is part of the golden run for Balmain as well. You know, they they won their first premiership in 1915, and they were undefeated that year. Had 12 yep. wins from 14 games. They won again in 1916. They won in 1917. Um, South won in 1918. Then Balmain won again in 1919 and 1920. So they had five premierships in six seasons. And yes. this is pretty much when they were at their peak. The Balmain era, yeah, one of one of two Balmain eras. Yeah, the other one was in the forties. Mm-hmm. So that's how long they had to wait for the next one. <laughs> um, the next team, and we're getting into the top three teams of all time here now. Yeah, okay. Nineteen thirty-five Roosters. This team just decimated everybody, and they were like, I mean, obviously one of the best teams of all time, but they were stacked with talent and, like, all-time talent. Absolutely. Um, 15 wins from 16 games, and that that one loss they had, um, that was to South just two weeks after they flogged Canterbury 87-7. to seven. <laughs> uh, Was that how- the game, 87-7, to seven, was that the game that... Um, the all-time record for points in the game was broken by Sinclair. Yes. yes, Dave Brown scored five tries and 15 goals in that game. What, what did he get, 40? 45 what? points. Yeah. More than half of their 87 points. Which is just mind-blowing. Like, uh, I can't even imagine what that that day must have been like to witness that. And that 87-7 to 7, um, win by the Roosters was a week after St. George had beaten the, the same team, Canterbury, 91-6. to six. It was not a good fortnight for the Doggies, although yeah. back then they were the Berries, weren't they? They were the Berries, yeah. Yeah. So it was a, a good three weeks, or three rounds, I should say, for ESA. They They beat Uni 61-5, to five, they beat Canterbury 87-7, to seven, then they beat North 57-9. Wow. Then they had that one loss to South 11-18, to 
Mm-hmm. From that point on, they didn't lose a game for the rest of 1935. They didn't lose a game in 1936 or 1937. Oh, what a, what a run. That's, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Certainly is. Um, but, yeah, that year... Dave Brown scored um, 38 tries, 65 goals, 244 points in 15 games. Yeah, it doesn't... It, even when you look at the statistics, you kind of think to yourself, "That's hang on, that's not possible. It can't, you can't fit that many points into that few games. Um, one of the all-time greatest players without question. And one of the other crazy things is that one of the other, I think, top five um, um, try scorers for tries in a season was Rod O'Lone, and he also did this in 1935. He had 27 tries in 18 games. Whoa, that's amazing. Imagine scoring 27 tries in 18 games, and no one in history remembers you because of Dave Brown. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good point, actually. Um, and just to add to it further, Fred Toddy scored 19 tries in 13 games. How about that? You score 19 in 13, and it's just your footnote. Yeah, no one cares. Jeez. But some of the names they had there, Jack Beaton, Dave Brown, obviously, um, Ross McKinnon, Ernie Norman, Sid Pearce, Henry Pearce, Ray Sturr, Viv Thickness, Fred Toddy, um, then Andrew Norville, Rod O'Lone, who we mentioned, um, Jack Lynch, Tom Dowling, these blokes were just, just utter stars. They're either at the, and, and nearly all of them are at the very start of their careers. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. It's, Dave Brown was twenty-two at the time. Wow, that's incredible. It's amazing to think that you get a team that comes together like that, and they go on. I mean, we talk about the St George teams and the run they went on. When you look at it and you think of that St. George team, like it was over such a long period of time. There were plays that come in and out during that time. I know they had a core that was there, but you're still going to get a, a turnover of players. This run really feels like this team, this unit of players did that themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah that's that's pretty much on the money. Um I'm just going to quickly touch on 1936 for them. Dave Brown scored 15 tries and 23 goals in 11 games in 36. Uh, Rod O'Lone, 20 tries in 14 games. And Fred Toddy, 25 tries in 15 games. Wow. And in 37, um, Dave Brown left the club at the end of 36 to go over to... Oh, I wish I'd remember. Went over to England to play over there in the... Um, the English competition for a few seasons, mm-hmm. and he he went okay, but he didn't go as well as he did in these uh these last two years. He had at East there before he just you know went over to England, mm-hmm. but they still had you know Fred Toddy still scored ten tries in eight games there. Uh, Rod O'Lone had seven tries in eight games, and this is a season that only had uh, nine rounds. Oh yeah, it was a short one. Yeah, so it was um unbe- unbelievable run. And then they won in round one of 1938 before losing to South in round two. So they lost to South in 1935. After that, started their winning run that went away through to 38, and South actually ended it as well. I bet the bunnies love that. They probably do. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, so there's that one there. And the next one, the second best team of all time, mm-hmm. is the 1959 St. George Dragons. Nice. They had and to be here somewhere. They had to be. They had 17 wins and one draw from their 18 games that year, so no losses. Wow. Um, they scored 550 points and conceded just 190. Oh, jeez. They ended up on the uh, on the ladder. Eight competition points clear of second place. <laughs> that must 13, have been 13, 13 points clear of, of Manly in third and 15 yeah. points clear of Newtown in fourth. So who were some of the players that were in that team? All right, this is George team. This is this team's full of stars. Um, Harry Bath, Kevin Brown, Bobby Bugden, Brian Clay, Reg Gaznia, Brian Graham, Ken Kearney, Eddie Lumsden, Norm Proven, Peter Proven, Johnny Raper, uh, Johnny Riley, Billy Wilson, uh, Jeff Weeks. God damn. <laughs> it's insane. But you can see the like the core of the players that would go on, you know, over the years to to you know have St George win eleven straight in a you know grand finals. Um, so just so many great players all like, coming together at the same time. Plus they did have a good mix of a few players who were a bit older. So Billy Wilson and uh, Ken Kearney and Harry Bath were all in their thirties. Yeah, um, and you throw in. You know, the likes of Brian Clay, um, Norm Proven were in their mid-20s, and then you just got Riley, Raper, Proven, uh, Peter Proven, um, Lumsden, Reg Gaznia, Bobby Bugden. Uh, they were in their early 20s. Just I, uh, I remember mix. I put uh, Ken Kearney in my all-time greatest team uh, that I wrote about 12 years ago, it would have been. Because I was reading up on him, and the thing that came across was that he was a real leader of men, mm-hmm. and he was a real hard man as well. Um, and a lot of the St. George players credited him with setting the tone for what they not only did at the time, but what they would go on to do. Oh, absolutely. Absolute professional. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a few few moments in, in sporting history where, you know, certain players will come along and they'll just improve the way things are done to some degree. And Kearney's professionalism and, and dedication to, you know, trying to be better, not just better people, but better athletes physically, mm. all that sort of stuff. That was a huge reason why St. George just went that, were just that one step better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until you had the likes of, um, you know, Bradley Clyde and Wayne Pierce in the, in the late eighties, early nineties with their really intense fitness regimes and, you know, diet and stuff like that. Yeah, Ian Roberts is a part of that as well. But you saw the next wave come through, and it changed the dynamic of how all footballers football should be from that point on as well. Yeah, yeah. And it just keeps going. Um, it's interesting that John Raper, he was he was very much about fitness and all that while he was playing. Um, he probably would have fit in, like, with his physical fitness into with those players like Clyde and Pierce, mm, like definitely. straight away, because that's how that's where his his level was at. That like he was one of the ones that was probably. I mean, do you think about it? He was probably you know twenty years ahead of his time. Oh, easy, uh, unbelievable player. Mm. Yeah, one of the one of the first few players who was you know obviously a forward, a lock, but was equally at home at five eight. Mm-hmm. 
he was possibly one of the first to be able to master both positions as well as as well as he did. Yeah. Um, but you think he and uh, Reg Gasney were both twenty that year, twenty years old. Yeah, and didn't like didn't Reg Gasney take over the Australian captaincy when he was like twenty one or something? Yeah, and... he actually. I'm pretty sure he broke the record for the youngest captain, and the previous record was held by Dave Brown. Yeah, and it was like. It's weird because it was just universal. Everyone was like, "Oh yeah, this guy, this is the dude that should be the captain of the team." Yeah, it's kind of after World War Two it ended. The Australian team was wasn't very strong. Mm. Um, they weren't easy beats or anything like that, but they they did struggle to keep up with the likes of England, especially mm-hmm. um, and and France. But when the fifties came along, man, if I could go back in a time machine to watch international football. The entire 1950s period, you just had England, France, and Australia are possibly the strongest they'd ever be, mm-hmm. all at the same time. Mm. Oh, it would have been fantastic. Yeah, and go, like going into games and not knowing who was going to win. Yeah, and and like the the idea that you know you went away and won on foreign soil was like wow. Because because everyone was because those three were strong, doing that really meant something. Exactly, exactly. Now, the last or the top team on the list here, mm-hmm. the only team to win one hundred percent of their regular season games, the nineteen twenty five South Sydney team. Mm-hmm. They were so dominant that the season was eventually cut short due to both the foregone conclusion of South Sydney's win percentage and to allow the uh, City Cup competition to start a bit earlier. That's absolutely incredible. So it finished after, they, they ended it after 12 rounds. And I think it was supposed to have 16. Not sure on that. I think it was supposed to have 16 uh, or 18, 16 games for each team. Yeah, it would have been 18 rounds. So it cut it off six weeks early. Mm-hmm. At that stage, Souths were first on 26 competition points. West was second, 10 points behind them. Wow. <laughs> and then there were three teams all on 15 points, 11 points behind South. So what was their for and against? They scored 190 points in 12 games and conceded 87. Far out. So it wasn't... They didn't blitz the field. They weren't racking up huge wins like the, the 35 East side were. Yeah, yeah. But defence was just off the chart. And... Like in rugby league, to for a team to be so far ahead that everyone agrees that look this foregone conclusion, let's just call it their premiership and go on to the Sydney Cup. That's not a rugby league thing to do. Like they they must have been so much better than everyone else that it was just very hard to argue with that that decision. Absolutely, they yeah they just dominated. Um. And yeah, you know, just managed to keep the teams that they're playing against, uh, you know, more often than not, at ten points or less. Mm-hmm. Only West in round eight managed to get to twenty points against them, but South just scored, you know, a try more. Mm-hmm. But you see, they beat Balmain sixteen ten, they beat Uni thirteen nil, East fourteen nil, St George eleven ten, Newtown fourteen twelve, Glebe thirty one to eight. West 23-20, North 15-10, Uni 8-2, Glebe 12-2, St. George 25-8, and East 8-5. Far out. 
So they just they just kept their opponents like having to work so hard to get what little points they could get. Now, do you consider them to be the best Australian club side of all time? I think in the I think in the New South Wales Rugby League competition, if you're going to look at utter dominance of a competition, it's hard to argue with the fact, given that they're the only team to have won every game they played in a year. Yeah. But, I don't know, the, the 59 St. George team, mm-hmm. they had some absolute stars in there. Uh, you know, future immortals, a number yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, that East team from 1935, that was a, a bloody impressive squad too. And considering that that went on to be undefeated for two two more seasons. Yeah. The, I, I kind of agree with you. Like, it's interesting that the, the South team, the top one, it doesn't get talked about too much. But, but I tend to agree with you that that St. George side and that Roosters team, you look at the players in them and it's just, you know, it's mind-boggling. Like, it just doesn't make sense. It's like looking at a rep side. Or the Broncos team from 2000. The Broncos team from 2000? Yes. Well, okay, so we've gone through the top top 12 teams that have scored 90% winning percentage or better. Yep, in the regular season games. Now, we are currently in round 15 of the 2020 NRL season. Yep. And the Penrith Panthers are sitting on top of the ladder. They've got a three-point buffer between them and the next team. And they've only lost one game all season. Yep, they've had 13 wins, a draw, and a loss. Now, for them to make the list that you have there, they would have to win their last five games. That's right. They need to get to 18 wins from 20 games to sit on 90% which I think is a really good modern-day marker to look at how dominant these teams we've just talked about are because the Panthers have been completely dominant this season. And for me to think that they're, they're right now they're not in that list of teams, you know, and forget about grand final success or not, it's kind of incredible that they're not there yet and they've only lost one game and drawn one game all year. Yeah, the crazy thing I think too is that since well, since the NRL era, you know, mm-hmm. nineteen ninety eight till now, only one team has managed to have a win percentage that's equal to or better than what the Panthers currently have, mm-hmm. and that was the two thousand seven Melbourne Storm side. And what happened to that two thousand seven team? They weren't entirely, uh, let's call them, fiscally legal. Okay. <laughs> Second set of books. Yeah. Um they had they won eighty seven point five percent of their games. Um Penrith are currently at eighty six point six seven. Now I've got a question for you because as a Panthers fan, for me it's too close. I I and I I'm I can't understand this season. I've never experienced anything like it as a Panthers fan and it kind of doesn't feel real. But as a non Panthers fan do you look at this Panthers side and see them as dominant as, say, that Storm team? Or do they feel different? Um, this is, I think this is an interesting thing, okay, is that 
I find every year uh, Melbourne and the Roosters are the two teams that you automatically go benchmarks. Everyone else has got to keep up with them. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of you that automatically thinks that one of, if not both of those teams are going to be in the grand final. Mm-hmm. Anything else is a lottery. And so to see Penrith doing as well as they are, um, there's nothing that they're doing to make me doubt that they can't go all the way. Mm-hmm. Other than the fact that Melbourne and the Roosters have been so dominant everywhere. And you get, it's almost like you, you trust them to get to the grand final. Yeah, yeah. But when it's any other team, not just Penrith, but any other team along the way, you just sort of go, eh. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I watched the way Penrith play. Um, their starts are unbelievable. And their ability to keep the foot on the pedal and stay in control of a game and not let the other team um, put on quick points. Like, they may concede tries and stuff like that, but they don't allow a team to put on two or three quick tries and, and claw their way back into a game. Mm-hmm. So like they, they'll let a try in. And then all of, all of a sudden, parents go, right, we've got to make sure we don't do that again. And their defence starts getting a bit tightened up and they... They stop worrying about attack so much and they focus on the defense to make sure they frustrate the opposition out of scoring points again. Yeah. That's really good tactics. That's working bloody well for them. Um, There's nothing about them at the moment that I see that suggests that they can't go all the way. Yeah, look, I know for me as a Panthers fan, I have the same sort of feeling I did in 2003. And I've I've said this for a few few weeks now where I, I trust them which is not something I'd normally do with the Panthers team. And the thing I like about this team, and we've talked about it a little bit before, statistically, this is the best Panthers team of all time at this point of the season. And you never know what's going to happen for the last five games and then in the finals. That's why we play the games. But uh, they're just, they're so dependable. And that's the thing that kind of shocks me a little bit. And so, like, when you see a team that's that I consider to be so dependable right now in season, and looking at their last five games, and I've said this before, there's really only one of them that's 50-50. The others, they should win. Um, the next game they play is against the Tigers. Maybe we should do a live, live <laughs> podcast of that. I'm going to go The only thing that gives the Tigers a little bit of hope mm-hmm. is that... Uh... Uh, kick hours put on report. Yeah, I saw that. And the Tigers are going to need him to get at least a one-week suspension if they're going to be a chance. Because yeah. he's been punching holes to whatever the hell he wanted to all year this year. Yeah. And, and I feel like they're starting to dial in how to use him. They certainly are. And he's he's roving into the middle a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was always going to be a smart game plan today because the, the Sharks' middle has been iffy at best for 80 minutes. So there'll be times when in the middle they're very tough to get through, but they can't maintain that that strength in defense the whole game. Yeah. And so Penrith just went, right, we're just going to keep throwing throwing kick out in the middle every now and then just to see, just to test its strength. And uh, they've been doing that every week. And uh, it's it's good to watch. It's good to watch him, him playing the way he is and being used properly. It really is, yeah, and it's um, like there's. The, I'm just enjoying this season so much. I've, you know, it's. I feel as though 2000. And, I was a bit young for 1990, 91, 
Um, 2003 I thoroughly enjoyed and this season is something completely different and I just I'm enjoying the ride you know it's not even as though if we didn't win the premiership this year I'd be completely gutted because I've got my 2003 title Um, so it's just fun to be able to enjoy this and to see all of these young players and you know, see them still improving week on week. I mean, even there was a run today that Nathan Cleary did, and I was like, oh, man, now he's running the ball as well. And, you know, there was a, a, a try that Crichton scored, which was just, you know, when he realises how good he is, everyone's stuffed. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see a team that can is so far ahead of everyone at the moment statistically and yet they're so far away from hitting the statistical markers that we've just talked about in this episode. Yeah, I think to the, I think since the, uh, since Cleary's TikTok video suspension was um, finished with, mm-hmm. he has looked a lot more in control of this team. Yeah, definitely. Like he, he actually starts. He's actually now looking like a seasoned veteran half, and not as a timid half like he had done in previous years. And I say timid not because he looked like he was weak or anything like that, but he just looked like there were times in games he wanted someone else to control the team. Mm. And I think that might have been because he had someone like Maloney around so he could just take a backseat whenever he wanted to. And it looked like it was going to cause problems because he looked like he might just sort of fade in and out of games. And, um, boy, that's not an issue anymore. He looks properly mature and grown up and he's taking full control of this team now. Yeah, I, he's he's got a real command of the game now. And I think that he's probably ahead of his years because he is a coach's son and he's grown up around this environment since he was a kid. Um, I think that that is a massive part of, of who he is and what we're seeing out in the field that probably doesn't get talked about enough. But on top of that, like, defensively, he's the best halfback in the game. I don't think there's any question about that. But now that, I mean, his kicking game is is absolutely sensational right now. Especially short kicking game. Yeah, and, and like even his long kicking game is very good as well. Oh, yeah, but that, that short kicking game, I mean, that was always a little bit... Yeah. It was a bit tricky, that one, but, man, it is, it is unbelievable right now. He's dialed it in, and he... He wants to take control of this team, and mm. it's I don't I haven't seen a halfback that has this sort of complete control of the game outside of a Thurston and a Johns, and that's it. Ricky like, Stewart, that's pretty much it. I'd yeah, put him in there. you know Stewart's the only other one that I think close is close. And the only reason I wouldn't say Stewart in there is because he kind of it, because he had Daly, it was kind of it, it, he didn't have to do that. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's not a knock on Ricky Stewart. It's just the fact that he had another dude alongside him that could do the exact same thing. But, yeah, those those lone halfbacks that were the driving force, he's what I'm seeing right now from him, and he's so young. It's the, I've, I really literally have only seen it in two other players before, and um, I can't believe it. I can't believe it's my team. <laughs> um, the other thing I was going to add to that was... There's another team I think that's out there that if if they do things properly, mm-hmm. they could go on a similar trajectory as to what the Penrith are doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it is actually the Sharks. Because oh, really? 
they've brought in, like Penrith did, brought in so many young players. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of um, experience around them, but it's mostly a fairly young side. But you also know that that Sharks team is going to have a f- quite a few players churn going on the next year or two. Yeah. So they're going to be inconsistent, but they're still going to be sort of around, you know, that 6th to 10th place on the ladder for a little while. Yeah, yeah. But if they manage things right and they manage to get the best out of those juniors and keep them together, there's no reason why they can't be a top four team in, in three or four years' time. Yeah, they've they've played above my expectations by quite a long way. Um, you know, and, and they do have a few holes in their team, but that they... You know, they've got a few really impressive youngsters, as you say, in that side. Um, And there's a reason why they are... I was going to say so much so that we've even forgotten about Bronson Cherry. Well, yeah, that's the thing. And, like, Bronson Cherry was a real X factor for them, and losing him was a major part of, like... I mean, you add what Bronson Cherry can bring to it, could have brought to it, the the team. And we know why he brought that to the team, too, (laughs) because he was, you know, (laughs) he was juiced. But uh, yeah, it, it's they've done very well considering, and considering how many players they've lost over the last few years as well. Um, that and it's interesting when you look at the young teams in the competition. The Sharks are kind of in the middle of that because the Panthers youngsters are all they're currently learning all the good lessons, and they're, they're it's kind of the perfect scenario for their for their young players. The Sharks are about the middle of the table, you know, and they're kind of what you would expect younger players to learn. You have your ups, you have your downs. Um, You know, your team very much rides on. If a couple of players get injured, you might not be in it at all. And then you get a team like the Broncos who are learning their young side and they're learning all the worst lessons. Yes. That's pretty much it. So the Sharks are pretty much tracking where a team should be that's, you know, got a bit of a youth policy in place, I guess. Mm. Um, so, and, you know, their, their results are showing it too. You know, they're, they're doing really well against teams that rank lower than them on the ladder. Mm-hmm. And they're struggling against teams that are higher than them on the ladder. Yeah. That's and they're, kind they're, of part of the For the most part, they're seasoned teams as well that they're losing to. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think if they, if they were to look after those youngsters they've got through and keep that process going and, you know, Hang on to the few experienced players they've got around that they need to. Not all of them, just the ones they need to. Wade Graham, especially. Um, I've got no, I don't see any reason why they can't improve on where they are now and become a much stronger team. Yeah. There you go. Something to take out of that for Sharks fans because they tend to get flogged tonight. Yeah. Look, I, I think most teams would have got flogged over the last few weeks by the Panthers, and I think that's why that, that game against the Eels is going to be so interesting because if the Panthers keep winning, that's basically going to be the the game for the minor premiership if it's not wrapped up already by then. And it's going to be the last real marker that we get on where the Panthers are going into the finals. The Eels are the only team that they haven't beaten. And I I need to see that before I can say they're the favourites. That's fair enough too. Well, uh, so much for this being a short episode. I know. <laughs> Well-intentioned, but there you go. Been fun, though. <laughs> it has been. Very good episode. Mm. Um, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, as always, thanks to our sponsor, Manscaped. 
yeah, go to manscaped.com, put in the code NRL at checkout, and you'll get 20% off and free shipping for all of the products on their website. So go there, Father's Day's coming up, you know, get something for Father's Day, a nice gift off there, and you will love it. Absolutely. And you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at FergoFreakPod. Um, we're on YouTube, LinkedIn, so Facebook. Get in there and get chatting with us. Uh, please leave a five-star rating and a review for us, and we'll read it out on here and pop it up on the website as well. And you can get in touch with us via the website, FergoOnTheFreak.com. Or you can drop us an email, Freaky. Yeah, go to podcast at leaguefreak.com. Um, and, yeah, that send us an email. We'll, every so often we do – we read the emails as soon as they come in, but we do email episodes. So, yeah, get an email to us. We'll read it out. Absolutely. And on that note, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Catch us all next time.